Hello and welcome to episode number 247 of the Armin Show podcast. This is the place to be. We are here with author of this book right here, Friendship, Lydia Denworth. The book is The Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. Lydia, glad to have you on the show. It's great to be here. This is a wonderful thing. Now, let me do an introduction of sorts, which I'm starting to do. It's entertaining to do in some ways, too. But you are a science journalist. You're author of this book. You have been a science journalist for a long time. You've written other books as well, popular science books. I Can Hear You Whisper, An Intimate Journey Through the Science of Sound and Language, and Toxic Truth, A Scientist, A Doctor, and The Battle Over Lead. You've contributed to Scientific American, The Atlantic, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Time, and these are all the biggest publications that we know of, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's any bigger ones. That's a wonderful thing. How did you get into science journalism at first? That's actually an interesting story because I was I was a journalist, but I had zero interest in science. Um, I was the the per, the kid who took the least amount of science in high school and college possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I but I have always been a writer and always a journalist. And in an early job, I, I was on staff at Newsweek early on as a reporter um, and and fact checker. And I worked with the science writer. I got assigned to help her on some stories. And I would say, you know, I'm really not the person you want. And she said, yeah, yeah. All you have to be is smart enough to ask questions and just keep asking questions. And and basically, to be a good science writer, you have to be willing to admit ignorance every single day <laughs> and ad- admit what you don't know. But so there was that moment early on where um, I had this thought that, okay, maybe just because I don't have a background in science doesn't mean I can't do it. But it wasn't until I did my first book, which was Toxic Truth, the lead book that you just mentioned, and um, I got interested in it from a kind of health perspective from children's health perspective but then i ended up writing about these two um, researchers one was a doctor who looked at kids but the other was a geochemist at caltech and i had to get into some really intense science and i found that it was really fascinating and also that i turned out to be better than i expected at at describing it to people and about telling the story. And and that was basically all she wrote. That was 15 years ago, and I have been writing about science ever since. Oh, this is a cool thing. I've noticed, this is a nice feature that I don't usually get to comment, but a lot of my books have been, that I've read and interviewed about were from scientists, which are really my folks, and I haven't really enjoyed that many books from science journalists. Your book has changed the tone here because it's not that easy. I don't think I don't know if people realize this, but to bring a level of information like a scientist without doing all the specific science is not is not light. So, uh, yeah, a few times I started to realize, like, I'm not really into works from science journalists, but that's not the case in this case. So, well, I I feel honored. (laughs) I feel really honored. (laughs) I have to share these things. I noticed these things. Yes. All right. Thank you. Yes. Now. One other cool feature I noticed as I'm reading through the book, a few of the scientists you mentioned I've interviewed, and also you get to meet so many different ones along the way. That's one of my favorite features about what you're doing. I like that actually more than specifically one field. I like the connectivity. Do you like that concept? I do. And I love, I feel, so I feel in my book, like the scientists though, I treat them a little bit like characters in a book. You know, I'm trying to write 
really good tell really good stories with a whole lot of of the evidence and the facts and the figures you need but i want to do it in a way that um that is uh fun and interesting to read and or compelling to read i guess and uh i love i mean i feel like one of the great things about my job is that I get to go spend time with scientists and really in it, when you write a book, you get to spend time in a much deeper way and, you know, visit their labs and spend hours or go to their field sites for days and, and really get them to talk about that. You know, they're not just doing a quick little interview with you with a few sound bites. You're really digging into the, the meat of the work and the passion that they have for it. And, um, and so a lot of them have become my friends now, which is really nice and a, a bonus, <laughs> I guess. Um, and I did find in this exactly what you're saying. I mean, I know that a lot of times the scientists write primarily about their own work and touch on other things, but this book is so interdisciplinary and has so many different kinds of scientists in it. And I did find that some of them were really intrigued by what else I was doing. And I was introducing them to some of this, the other work in a different sort of, you know, field that was related to what they were doing. I was surprised they didn't know, but they didn't always because, you know, people get a little bit siloed. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they get into a narrow category and then the broadness really expands that. You can only do so much in a narrow category before you start to feel like you've put yourself into a, a box and then anybody that helps you extend outward, it's like refreshing. Thank you. Thanks for this air. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, one thing you just mentioned that's very key, I wasn't actually thinking about that, but I want to include that. Uh, one key point for me in 2020 is because of good old Kobe Bryant and his message of storytelling these last couple of years, you just talked about that, the power of story. You mentioned that in every chapter you start with a story and then you connect into the concept. It's nice because it relates to you went there, you saw these monkeys do this. You saw uh, research about what people were doing in this capacity, and then you go to the details of it. Story is something that brings you in. There's a compelling power that you can't just do with facts, or everybody would just be in the library, maybe. They would just be reading books. For sure. And the really important thing is that um, science, scientists and science needs to be out in the world and understood by people who are not scientists. And, uh, and I you have to make it accessible and you have to, um, I also think that science is fundamentally a terrific story. I mean, it's got all kinds of intriguing plot twists and, and developments and, and, you know, people who are interesting. Um, and it's, you know, it's got a beginning and a middle and not of course an end because it's always evolving, but, um, but, you know, you take an idea and you look at how have we changed how we think about this idea and what we know, what do we know about the world so far and, and how did we figure it out? That's a story. And that's how I love to, to approach it and, and tell it in my books. Now, as far as friendship, what led to the focus on friendship to write this book in the first place? Why did you analyze that? Well, as a science journalist, I spend a lot of my time listening in on other science on scientists when they speak to each other at meetings and conferences and uh, and listening in for what they're interested in, what they think is important, what they think is new. And this question of the biology of friendship seemed really interesting to me because it's such a serious way of looking at social behavior. And I did notice, I mean, there's all these kind of subfields. So now there's neuroscience and there's social neuroscience and there's epidemiology and then there's social epidemiology. And so this looking in the last few decades at social behavior has really um, 
increased dramatically. And, uh, and I was fascinated by that. I mean, most of my work is, I, I mostly cover the brain and psychology. So it was through social neuroscience that I got interested in this. And I was, I loved that, that there was this question of not just mapping the connections inside the brain, but mapping the connections from your brain out into the world to the people that you're connected to. And that's, and showing why and how it mattered. And, um, but then friendship in particular struck me as the piece of the relationship story that really hadn't been told, hadn't been focused on. And it's kind of a metaphor for the whole, I mean, scientists didn't take friendship all that seriously for a long time. I mean, of course we knew it was be pleasurable and valuable, but we didn't think it was invaluable, we thought, or essential. And now we know that it is, and that it has this um, really fundamental effect on your, on your mental and your physical health, your longevity. And, um, and so I thought it would be really interesting to treat it as seriously as I, I think it deserves to be treated. Mm -hmm. It's a very key concept. After the book, you start to feel like any sorts of socializing or friendship you have built in your time was a big health bonus that you put into your life. Now, early in the book, you talk about how, many parts of the book, you talk about how monkeys were analyzed to see how they related to us and what we could learn from them, uh, looking at scientists that actually went into their community. Can you speak a bit about scientists going into the communities of monkeys to test what their responses would be? Sure. Now, I do want to say to begin that I said earlier that, you know, people work in their silos. But one thing that's really interesting about, especially about social neuroscience, is that actually it's one field where um, animal work and human work coexist. And the meetings of social neuroscientists have both kinds of work. So that's that's how I understood from the start that the work that was being done in monkeys was going to be relevant and important. And, um, and it's, it's the work that really has contributed the most to our evolutionary understanding of this idea that there is this actual survival of the friendliest. It's not all survival of the fittest. And, um, and so the, the, the thing that has led to us, so part of the work that people do in monkeys, it's in mostly in rhesus macaques and baboons, but all kinds of other species as well, is, uh, is look at things like they isolate social behavior and look at the brain and try to figure out where the commonalities are, where the boundaries are between animals and humans, and they keep moving. You know, animals are able to do far more than we usually think. Um, Every time we say they can't do it, we discover that they can. We have to, you know, shift the goalpost. But the really interesting work on the evolutionary front are these long-running field sites where, um, where researchers follow the animals and observe them very carefully in this kind of rigorous way. And uh, and but essentially, what they're doing is they're working like gossip columnists. They're exacting gossip columnists who are tracking who does what to whom and what happens as a result. <laughs> and. Uh, and and who was nearby um and so that from that and from doing that for decades they generated all kinds of research and data that that when they analyzed it they they were able to discover just how critical the strength of social bonds were and it was actually more important than dominance hierarchies, which are a, a major feature of, of monkey life. Um, and I mean, they also exist in human lives, but we don't, you know, not as explicitly maybe. And so it was the big surprise was that this, that social bonds mattered so very much. 
in the in the baboons, in the macaques. It it affects your um, your reproductive success, how many babies you have, and how long they live, and it affects your own individual your own longevity as an individual if you're a monkey, a baboon. And, uh, and basically, you can't do better than that in evolutionary terms, right? Mm-hmm. Reproductive success and longevity is what, is what it's all about. This is true. I noticed a lot about the dominance hierarchies, and throughout the book, I was comparing their actions to what people do. And you're right, yes. it's not as explicit in people, but definitely it's almost on par. It's there. <laughs> it's there. The, the, the similarities are, are, are many between mm-hmm. our societies and these monkey societies. It's almost like looking at them, you can see a good percentage of what people are thinking underneath their actions but not saying publicly. It's almost like that to me. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Mm-hmm. Now, after some of those studies, you also mentioned how kids start growing up and recognize social skills, uh, how they develop to make friends. Can you speak a bit about the early friendship stages that kids go through and what they represent, why they had to be there evolutionarily? Yes. We humans come into the world with a sort of predisposition for social behavior, but your ex- lived experience really determines how how that develops, right? And so it was fascinating to me that that neuroscientists can see the difference in the brain of a baby born yesterday versus a baby born today, they can see more specialization to social activity, social behavior in the brain. And that first two years of life is this critical period where um, babies are learning to process the world, the, the signals they see, so they respond differently, for instance, to a hand waving than to a, a a truck moving. And even though there's motion in both things, the hand is a social signal, right? And the truck is not. And they're more different parts of the brain are, you know, they're, they're more, more attuned to the social stuff. They, they use different parts of the brain to look at it. And, and in the first two years of life, there's this specialization that just increases literally day by day um, to be social. So that's the first part. And parents and caregivers are kind of priming all of that. And I I don't know if we think enough about how much as a parent of a very young child, you're not just sort of feeding and sheltering and, and, and you know, protecting your kid. You are laying the groundwork for whether they will be a good friend and whether they will have the ability to make and maintain friends. And then as kids get to school age, um, they need – evolutionarily, they need those um, peer relationships. And it's across cultures around the world and in, um, and in other species, like there's a, there's something different that goes on in adolescence. And, you know, there's a, there's a really, it's a really social time and that's by design. And, and there's different skills that, that, that kids are getting, they're getting trust and, and cooperation and loyalty and how to, work in a group of peers and understand group dynamics and things like that. And, and humans, you know, have this much longer period between weaning and puberty. And a lot of it is devoted to developing the social brain and the big brain. And, uh, and then, and then as we, as we move on in life, I mean, by the time we're adults, our, our brains are in fact always changing. We know this now, but you know, most of those networks are laid down, um, 
And then it's more has more to do with what it looks like in our lives um, at that point. Um, but the really interesting thing is all through life, I mean, you you always have the ability to make to make new friends and to um, and to change how you're doing it. But, you know, it's those early years where where you're most fundamentally involved. Oh, and I, I, I forgot to mention a, a critical a critical moment is the development of empathy and theory of mind and the ability to predict what someone else is thinking or what they might believe that's might be and to understand that it's different from what you know and that's that's a foundational thing that that develops in kids over time but um it was sort of critical moment is like age three or four and 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 after that you know they look like they have more friendships that are really friendships not just parallel play right right I like that you mentioned in the book some of the friendships early on in life. It's like, they don't hit me. That's right. your friend. <laughs> no, I actually thought that was profound. So when they asked preschoolers, how do you define a friend? What's a good friend? They said, a friend shares with me, plays with me, and doesn't hit me. And I was like, you know, man, truer words have never been spoken. It's, 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 it's true for us, right? Your mm -hmm. friends are the people who help you, who make you feel good, and who don't hurt you. And, you know, it, it looks a little different in adulthood but the fundamental truths are, are are still there i can confirm this my friends are not hitting me which is nice good i'm glad it's I'm a glad. gift yes <laughs> one thing i i noticed the kids they you talked about that faces matter more than any other other visual stimulus and that made me think of facebook it's not called like leg book or knee book or something it's uh -huh. that's where all the detail is at and yeah. that was probably a key point that he thought about when he formed that network that uh, I mean, it's obvious, I guess, to some, but that's where all the differentiation is that we have built in over time. Yeah, that's true. I I know, though, that Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, partly he, I'm not sure if he came, I mean, he obviously named his, his mm -hmm. business that, but those, those exist um, on college campuses, right? I mean, when I was in college before Mark Zuckerberg, uh, we got, and I think they called it a Facebook where they had a little headshot of every kid in the every other student in your new incoming year and everybody poured over them sort of religiously like, right yeah like who's this person who is he because you're thinking all these people have the potential to be new friends when you get to college i mean it's so intensely social right and uh and so what he did was take all that right and put it online and create this now create this juggernaut um one thing slightly related to this it's not exactly in the book but sort of but do you ever have a feeling that you can tell just from people's uh face like their personality in some form I'm not sure you can tell their personality or I can't say if I, well, okay. People who are really super negative about the world, I think you can see that <laughs> mm. because they just always look, just like, uh, mm. yeah, you know, they look whatever, right. suspicious the or something like that. Um, you, you can see all kinds of emotion in the face, which is why the face is such an important signal for social behavior. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the eyes in particular. And, and so um, personality I don't know. Uh, maybe. Might be a maybe. <laughs> Sometimes I feel it. Now, one thing in another section you talked about stress. I always focus on people's stress, how they're impacted by others. That's why I like the monkey studies. You can see like the dominance hierarchy when one like subjugates the other one, then this one feels a stress response. This one feels like a slight victory. It is sort of like a win-lose at that moment. Yes. And, and then you talked about how the most common source of stress in people is interpersonal relations with other humans. Can we speak a bit about on stress? 
Stress is really important. And it is one of the things that one of the ideas that really kind of undergirds this, this research, it was one of the um, concepts that, and that, and that recognizing. So some of the earliest work, um, understanding stress and the way that it created um, a physiological response in the body was uh, it predates understanding the importance of social relationships, but it kind of, it, it fed into it all. Right. And, um, and so stress, your stress responses, uh, are increased by the, by all the stresses of, of day-to-day life. And really what friendship on an evolutionary level is about is helping us develop a way to get through and to sort of weather the stresses of day-to-day life so that you've got other individuals there to help protect you and what they find is things like um you know let's say you're there was a kind of famous study where they had two friends standing and looking at a hillside they were outside and i think or maybe it was just a picture of it but they're looking at and they think they have to go climb it and walk up it and if you're with a friend you see that as much less difficult to do and your stress level is lower um, and friends can get in and buffer stress um, when you have to do public speaking or things like that um, and public speaking always comes up in these studies as a way of <laughs> testing stress <laughs> math problems and public speaking are the two things that are used there's this there's a you know a set um, set of studies that that test stress and that's what they use which really makes me laugh but um it shows how universal the stress level is for those things that's kind of funny one thing i tutor math also so that's ah, the categories go. i like to do <laughs> and if i'm not doing public speaking within five years no so maybe i kind of like the kind of like that uh, do you find yourself by the way unrelated but do you like uh things like public speaking or group scenario where you're discussing to a lot of people yeah, I I am probably unusual in that I'm not as intimidated about that, and I kind of like being the center of attention. I I suppose there's something. Everybody, to that. Lydia. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I am. Um, but I, you know, I get some. I get. I enjoy getting a positive response from people, and and uh, and that's always been true. But even said, even that said, I mean, and also my job kind of requires me to then go talk about what I do, and um, you know, do interviews like this, and go on television, and and stand up and and talk to people uh, in bookstores and at meetings and conferences. And um, but I always get nervous right before a big public speaking event. Uh, so. The stress is still there. It's just that I guess I'm I'm better able to um, to see the potential positives and to sort of use the stress because some stress is good for us, right? It gets us like amped up to take an exam or to you know to get ready to do uh, a, a a public talk or whatever it is. Um, but it's when stress is unrelieved and uh, and sort of chronic that it causes these health problems. Mm-hmm. Now, on the opposite end of those who have many friendships is those that have very few, talked about in this book, uh, a fair amount of loneliness, people who are yeah. separate from the crowd, the outliers on a big network scale. What are some of the life impacts on people who are in that category and uh, how heritable are some of the traits connected to loneliness? Um, so sociability traits are are heritable, but not... Um... You know, and I'm 
I'm forgetting the exact percentage, but I'm going to say it's under 25%. Uh, uh, but um, the thing about loneliness is that what what we've now understand is just how bad it is for your health. Um, I do want to clarify that that doesn't mean, because a lot of people ask, well, but I'm an introvert or, you know, I like being alone. And, uh, and that's okay. Um, first of all, being an introvert doesn't mean you don't have friends. It, it just means maybe that you do your socializing in a different way. Maybe you prefer just to spend time with one friend alone and not to, um, and not with a larger group. That's totally fine. But what really matters is that you do have those one-on-one relationships. Um, and then there are people who really enjoy being alone. Loneliness in a sort of from a social neuroscience point of view is actually the mismatch between what you want in terms of social connection and what you have. And so if there's no mismatch, you're not that lonely, right? Um, but the, and then the, the corollary to that is that we can think about loneliness as actually the body's signal that you need to connect with people just like thirst and hunger tell you that you need to eat and drink. And, um, and that was a, like a really radical change in the thinking. And what they find, you asked about the effects of it. So, I mean, loneliness is almost no part of your physiology and your your biology that isn't affected by loneliness. It affects your cardiovascular functioning, your immune functioning, your sleep quality, your cognitive health, um, just your mental health tendency to depression and things like that. And, and a lot of people thought, well, no, maybe the depression comes first and the loneliness comes along for the ride. But, but the researchers really looked at that very carefully and found, no, the loneliness causes depression. Um, and so it's, it's just so important and it affects how long you live actually. So people who are really lonely, uh, a, a social isolation as a lot of people probably have heard this statistic, but it's, it's as bad for us as smoking and obesity in terms of our longevity, mortality. Mm-hmm. I like that you describe it that way. The mismatch between, let's say you desire here by default and it's here and mm-hmm. you're lonely. If you desire here by default and it's here, you're fine. Yeah. You're just matching your internal desire. Yeah. Mine's kind of high, but then I try to keep it high, so it's generally good. But uh, for some people, uh, just a one person talking to them might be enough for a whole. Might week. be enough. I do think. I suspect, however, I just will say, I suspect there's some people who claim that they're not lonely right. and actually are. Maybe more. They just don't want to admit to it, or they, you know, have convinced themselves that they. Um, and it's often true that you know. There's a lot of times, for instance, where you think, I just want to stay home tonight and watch Netflix and eat ice cream. And, you know, I don't want to make the effort to go out. And a lot of people, usually if you do make the effort and go out and hang out with your friends, you're glad you did. Very few people report back to me that they are sorry they went, you know. (laughs) Um, And so I think sometimes we just have to push ourselves that little bit extra and not sort of rely on the thing. Well, I'm introverted and I like to stay home. And I say that as someone who actually does enjoy spending plenty of time by myself. Um, So I am not afraid to go to a restaurant by myself, a movie by myself. I love like a night when none of my family needs me and I can just like watch what I want to watch on TV and eat what I'm, I'm all about that. But, um, but you really do need to put in that, that make that effort. And yes, even if it's just the one person you need, then make sure you do spend time with that person. I like that, by the way, uh, to me, I just, I'm very tuned in on self-esteem and, uh, fear. And when I hear that, I think of uh, good self-esteem because 
some people might want to go to that same restaurant by themselves, but they would never do it because of the, you know, what will I be right. thought of? And then the other people in the restaurant are just eating their sandwich. They're not... Con- they, they don't care that much about you. <laughs> like, imagine if they had their life so in order that now they're paying attention to other people uh, caring-wise, and they're, okay, I want to, okay, think about that person. I'm judging them, but I care about... Them. Really, what's the chance that they're actually... No, it's, there's almost no world where that thought would come into play. But in a way, that's ego on those individuals' end more so than yours, because they're thinking... People can focus on me. People are, and then other people, if they go to some, uh, you know, celebrity-oriented thing, they want to get attention. You can't even get attention in 2020. And then that person's thinking they're all gonna, is like, <laughs> inverted. It's true. It's true. It's a funny thing. In one of your chapters, you talk about a very important part in people's life, which is middle school and lunchtime. There, mm-hmm. which one thing I note from that chapter and focusing on that, all these key moments in life. Most of the people along the way think it's like just them at that time. And then later on, they realize it was them and 48,000 other people at the time. Uh, What items can we look at as far as the dynamic at lunchtime for middle school kids and what that says about their future? Right. So I'll just say that, you know, that that insight came from uh, another mother when my oldest child was about to start middle school and we were sort of chatting in the summer before school started and her kids were older. So she'd been through it. And she said to me, middle school is about lunch. And I recognized at the moment that this was a profound statement. And that I um, and she had just handed me this wonderful piece of parental wisdom because we so much of what we care about as parents about school is about the academics and things. And we know the social scene start it matters. And especially in middle school, I mean, we're all it's such a sort of turbulent time for anybody. Um, your hormones are starting to run wild. You're figuring out your identity and all that. Um But the idea that lunch was so critical. And then I realized, of course, because think about all the movies and books that have those terrible scenes in the cafeteria and standing there with your tray and no one to eat with is this just, oh, God, it's hard even to makes you feel pain in your, you know, remembering those kinds of of moments. And and so. It's because it's all about establishing this, you know, where you are in the social hierarchy. There we go. There's a hierarchy, right? You know, there's the cool kids at this table or there's this clique and there's that group. And uh, and then the kids who are totally alone um, are, you know, now maybe some of them want to be that way. But uh, but a lot of them, um, a lot of them don't. And and. So it's, I think the takeaway for parents and teachers is to, sorry, my dog is starting to bark back here. Oof. I hope that's not, you're not <laughs> that's fine. That's, fine. <laughs> that's okay. life right there. Yeah. The takeaway for parents and teachers is, um, is just to understand how much friendships are inside kids. Like that's what they're focused on and they tend to do better actually if they get to be with their friends and, And if you sort of, a lot of times, you know, teachers say, oh, well, these kids are being disruptive or they're spending too much time talking to their friends, which is true. They do do that. And, and kids need, I mean, kids need to meet us halfway, right? Maybe um, if teachers and parents um, are trying to stop, uh, you know, um, are trying to separate kids from their friends, then, then they need to, um, to, sorry, the dog's barking is (laughs) 
I'm, part of I'm life, losing okay? my train of thought. Um, that that we need to factor in how important friendship is for kids' success, and then kids, maybe if you know, if we could get into the mind of an 11 year old or 12 year old in middle school and say, look, we will give you a shot at you know being with your friends, but you have to meet us halfway by by behaving and, and, you know, not, not distracting the class or not, you know, and, um, and some kids are able to do that and others are not, but, but it's just really that, that sense of how, um, how much the social brain is, is taking, is hyper stimulated by social activity at that point in life. And, and adults just have to recognize it. And too often we're sort of like, Oh, please kids, you know, it's not all about your friends, but it actually is. I noticed that two things that came to mind about that section was it's a very emotional, it's the emotional part you remember of, you don't remember like third period, but you'll remember that part of yes, the day because right. emotions right. are remembered years later. And yes. then the other part is it makes me think of that kids don't realize that not only is everybody else having the same thoughts as them, like where do they fit in, but let's say those few that already had like five brothers and sisters or they were part of a popular crew, that was from before. In life, you're always, it's always almost fair. Like other than that, but that was separate. That had nothing to do with you. If you come in knowing that beforehand, it's like you outdid the moment and then you'll always be confident in whatever you do forever. So. Yeah, I always think if you scratch the surface of anybody's life, you find that there's there's always stuff, right? And there and uh, some of it is just that we all have to navigate life in the same the same challenges and we all have the same insecurities and things like that. It's also true that most people there may well be more going on in their life behind the scenes than any of us know. So I do feel like you should sort of meet people um without with as few assumptions and and as possible and in middle school it's a good way to be right and in high school um and but yes it's middle school is hard for everyone that i it seems to be very clear um the other thing about it that's really interesting from a friendship point of view is that so in a, in the u.s of course most kids start middle school in sixth grade and they come from other schools and so they tend to start with a few cl close friends and then I think it's three quarters of them change friends by the end of the school year. And it's because it's this time when you're finding your identity and you are, you know, figuring out who you want to be in the world. And, and you are, and that change is actually normal, I guess, is, is one of the things that's important to understand. And so if, if, you know, one friend of your, your old friend from elementary school now is developing another interest in, instead of agonizing about that, if we can encourage kids to go find kids, who, other children who have the same interests as you, you know, that's where you're going to find your real friends, your people. That's true. I always speak about the, my people. Actually, I have that in the trailer for my channel. I talk about connecting with some people who are my, more my people who have insights yeah. or thoughts or you want whatever that is. If I liked, I don't know, playing baseball and just talking about baseball, that'll be my people and I'd find individuals or is, certain stuff. Yeah. And another interesting thing I think about kids and the social scene for kids in schools is that, of course, there's this, you know, there's the popular kids and less popular kids or but and we often kind of, you know, people think of athletes as as successful and popular and maybe the computer kids are less popular or they're nerdier or something. But actually, and that of course, there's some of that going on, but it's also true that the computer kids are likely to be friends because they're together in the computer lab for hours and hours and hours. And the football kids are likely to be friends because they're out on the field and at practice for hours and hours. And, and, 
so it's not always so easy to develop a strong friendship. Now, it's important to be kind to everybody and to treat people well and not to you know, bullying is terrible for kids. And and uh, and so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about expecting them to develop strong friendships across those groups is is not always um, is not always a fair expectation. Adults don't really do it either. Um, it's great though. Kids who do do a lot of different things do tend to have more diverse friendships and be more resilient and better at making friends with new and different kinds of people. So meaning that like if you go to a school that's a very diverse environment, that's one thing. Or even if you go to a school that's more homogenous in terms of like all the all white kids or all black kids, but you. But you do like orchestra and sports and, you know, academic or whatever it is, you are more likely to have friends from each of those different things that you do. And that does tend to develop into having sort of more tolerance and resilience, which is interesting. So it's good to create those kinds of environments and encourage kids in those environments to, to reach across to other areas. Yes. It's one of the best things. I think to me, the, my favorite people are the ones that can do a little bit of like jumping from I don't know if you've ever seen like a map where it's like a bunch of hills and it's like a 3D space and you can stay on your hill and it's comfortable you can go up to the top of your hill but that hill over there might be higher but you have to do a jump before you can get there it takes mm -hmm. a risk but then that hill might be up to here mm -hmm. it's a nice feature one thing I noted throughout the book this was a great thing is that you illuminated the work of many women scientists that are doing great things and then you focused on also research that included female mice, which were left out of studies, only the male <laughs> mice were done in studies, and the concept of their potential to tend and befriend versus tend what the befriend. male... Tend and befriend, right, right. It turned out to be really important in the work in other animals, especially that scientists started looking at female animals and not at the males. Um, and this was true in the work on stress. It was true in the evolutionary stuff. And, um, and it was, um, almost entirely female scientists who had that kind of epiphany and changed their, you know, changed what they focused on. And so, yeah, I loved that. I mean, it's such a sort of great piece of the story is like saying, wait a minute. I mean, when you're talking about baboons, for instance, all the attention early on was on the males that that's where the action is, that's sex and fighting and all that stuff. And it was only when the attention shifted to saying, you know, I think what's going on with those females is actually pretty important and has real repercussions and con or consequences for the next generation. And it's quieter, but it's really, it's, it's, it did turn out that, that, that um, intuition turned out to be exactly right. The other thing that's really interesting is that that finding that like the strength of social bonds among female baboons uh, being so important caused a lot of researchers then to go back and look at the males again and to look at them more carefully and discovered, oh, you know what? It wasn't so obvious, but they all have these tight bonds too. And it matters for them too. So it's like you, the more you know, the more you see, right? And you got to be looking something like friendship. Um, and so, the, yeah, the female scientists were looking at a different way and then they studied different things and then they changed the entire field. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you just look at the visible light and then add in the ultraviolet right light and you're like oh that was there the whole time it was just <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's exactly right that's exactly right and i, I do want to just say so i got a grant from the alfred p sloan foundation to um to write this book and uh and part of they like to support female science writers 
And they also are looking a lot for work about female scientists. So I was, I got, I hit on two points there. Um, even though this wasn't only about female scientists, there are so many of them that that is kind of a feature. And I'm glad you noticed. Yeah. One of the <laughs> One of the first ones that always comes to mind. I once did a text interview with her, Lisa Randall from uh, Harvard. For yeah. she does, uh, she wrote Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs. I liked how she made that. I don't usually read about the universe, but I found that to be interesting. So mm-hmm. that was kind of cool. One quote I liked, or message I liked a lot in the book that I bolded it in my notes was talking about how strong social bonds mattered more than rank for baboons. Yes. Uh, can you speak on that? And does that relate with people? Like if you have a good friend versus how high their rank is, you guys have a chance to build something great together, more likely. Uh, Yeah, so we touched on this a little bit before when we were talking about the fact that dominance hierarchies are such an integral part of monkey life, and of course, less explicitly, but just as true about human life. It is true that the best friendships for humans do tend to have a little bit more equality in them, um, and that that it just makes it easier to really have the reciprocity and cooperation that's that's necessary and then ultimately in in people the kind of honesty and and um you know ease of companionship because if you're with your boss all the time you might not be as relaxed <laughs> as yeah you know, I, or if you are and you have that then that's great it's not that it's impossible it's just that it's less likely um so yeah when there's a hierarchy it's another reason why Um, parents and kids have a vertical relationship with some authority and things like that. We hope there's authority. And that's where this idea that you, you know, should or shouldn't be friends with your kids, um, is it, it is harder to really truly be friends with your kids, which doesn't mean that you have great love and affection for them, um, that you don't have great love and affection. You do, but, um, but in fact, you aren't really trying to be their friend because you're trying to teach them things and guide them. And, and also you have to deliver, you know, hard news a lot, a lot of the time, um, and, and discipline them and not be afraid of that. And, and yet you want to keep the lines of communication open. And I think that's an important part Take friendship and apply it to your parenting. Like I said, being more aware of how much friendship matters to them. And I hope people have really positive relationships with their kids, but that, that, the real friendships, um, and that's like maybe one ex- one exception to my sort of statement that our biological f- relationships can be great friendships too, um, but there, it's better when there's more equality. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Then you have more room to connect with versus the other one it might make you a little bit more nervous. Oh, should I say that? Can I say that? And then you can't yeah yeah there's some of that i mean i say this as someone who's awfully close to my three kids and i um and i i do feel like they share a lot with me but i don't it's it's a different dynamic than the relationship that um that they have with their friends that and that's as it should be um Mm -hmm. so yeah i think it comes up more in terms of friendships right i mean i mentioned that earlier but with your boss I said, you know, that's where that question really comes into into play. Right, the dynamic. Now, one thing about friendships is most of us have just a few really close friends. I like how you broke down the hours almost it takes to make a friend from an acquaintance to a casual friend to a close friend to a best friend. And what what is the an ideal number of friendships for a person to have? 
do they how much familial friendship does there need to be and does there need to be any familial uh, friendship in play you need to have at least one friend so the real step change is between zero and one for your health okay um, but most people have their closest circle their inner circle is usually about four people as the average and it's often maybe half family members and half friends. But what I think is most critical is it's less. So quality matters more than quantity and quality matters more than the origin of the bond. So it's great if those are family members and you have that kind of relationship with them. But sometimes we don't either. I mean, it can be really toxic and negative or it can just be that you're, you know, you're, you love each other, but you're not great friends. You don't, you know, rely on each other in that way. Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily put those people in your in thinking about your inner circle. You know, those those people there that let's call it four, the average, they should be the ones that really those are positive relationships that, you know, you can rely on. They're stable. They've been around a long time and and that there and there's helpfulness. There's cooperation and reciprocity and you kind of meet each other halfway and not it's not for tat like. I just want to emphasize that one of the lovely things about deep human friendship is that the accounting of, you know, well, I did this for you. Now you have to do that for me. It goes away, right? When you get, when you get really close to someone, but ultimately in the grand scheme of things, like in the, over the years, it, there needs to be back and forth, right? So maybe one person is more in, has a crisis for a while and, you know, you know there's more in on there and then eventually it'll come back. If it never comes back, then those relationships tend to to wither away a bit. There, if there's never that back and forth um, over time. Mm -hmm. I like that you mentioned that. Actually, I, I quoted that part about the indistinguishable um, give and take that shows up yeah. at some point. Yesterday, I quoted that. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I like posting little quotes or the messages yeah. that are key. One last point I want to bring up from the book, because I don't want to give it all away. No, I know. <laughs> we want people to buy the book and read it. I like to, but I like to go in the detail because I take notes on on all books in uh, Evernote. I don't know. Do you use any note taking software, by the way? Uh, you know, I I try, but I'm I'm still kind of an old fashioned like write it down person. I yeah, that's where it works best for me. I do take notes. I take notes on my phone sometimes, and sometimes in Evernote. And you know, that's a good segue because writing down is the in life version of the like typing on the screen face-to-face -face interaction you mentioned is quite important versus the screen i've talked about uh, bandwidth before on the show like mm -hmm. the highest bandwidth is in person versus video versus audio than text and lowest bandwidth is a one bit like cal newport he once said that he's <laughs> like a one bit like it says nothing it's just like i can't tell you anything. yeah yeah can, yeah can you speak a bit about the importance of face-to-face -face interaction as far as friendship certainly um it's, it is essential for those closest bonds. Um, you can't, you know, I think I said before that, you know, if you communicate with your friend in multiple ways and including online, it strengthens the friendship, but there has to be some face-to-face -face time and eye contact and face-to-face -face time, um, actually eye contact triggers the social and language parts of our brain, the communication parts of our brain, and it sort of primes us to interact socially. And looking at someone on a screen has less of an effect. And, and if there's no, no visual, it's, you know, it's very different. And so there is something very special about that time together. And all those hours cannot be spent 
that you need, they cannot be spent online yet. And so it's 50 hours to go from an acquaintance to a friend and roughly 200 to develop a best friend. And that's a lot of hours and they need, you know, a good number of them need to be spent in person. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's not a light natured thing. That's why we value them as people. And when other people have friendships, it's like a thing because that's not a small investment. That's true. One question I always like to ask, if you had one message to all the people on the planet that represents what you would want them to take away from what you do and or this book, what would that be in a sentence or two as far as friendship or what to I take think away? I said this at the beginning. I think you asked me this at the beginning, but if I'm wrong, the big takeaway from this book is to give yourself permission to hang out with your friends. I am not trying to add to people's to-do list. I just want them to understand how important it is to be with your your friends and that you're doing something really good for yourself and it's not just frivolous it's not um it's not unimportant and and if it takes you away from work sometimes or from your family that's okay or even spending the time with your family if that's who your friends are but like that it's worth doing people and friends are an excellent investment of your time and the other stuff will still be there when you are done with your friends you know you can go back to work and maybe you'll be refreshed and your biology will thank you. Your health will benefit. The health benefits abound in this book. I'll once again showcase this for those who are seeing this on the screen. Friendship, a wonderful book worth reading and or taking notes on. And making science journalism cool again. Lydia Denworth, <laughs> glad to have well, you on episode you. 247 of the show. Thank you. You know it. And we are out.